0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the June 2021 episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ishu. This month, we're going to dive into syncope with a very special guest, Dr. James Morris, or Trey, as we call him lovingly. He is going to walk us through his article in Emergency Medicine Practice on the topic of syncope. But before we dive into that, I want to remind everyone out there of the Clinical Decision-Making in Emergency Medicine Conference being held this month, June 23rd through the 27th in Ponta Vedra. I really hope you can make it, and I want to see you there in person. I'll be there personally. But if you can't make it, clinicaldecisionmaking.com, there is a virtual option. I highly recommend it. You've already been reading all of the highlights from these faculty all year long, and this is your opportunity to see them live. And secondly, I want to also remind you, we announced last month some exciting news about EB Medicine and our new mobile app coming this summer. So keep your eyes on your email inbox about that special announcement and all the wonderful features that'll be included in that both emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice are outstanding references that you are already accustomed to using, and now they'll be available to you more rapidly in the mobile app. So can't wait for that release this summer. It has been a labor of love for the EB Medicine team and something that we're all looking forward to very soon. And now here's Dr. Morris.
1: My name is James Morris, and I'm the Program Director of the Emergency Medicine Residency at the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Medicine in Lubbock, Texas.
0: Wonderful. I really appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. And more than that, I appreciate you taking the time to author this month's issue in Emergency Medicine Practice on syncope. It is quite the varied topic. There are a number of things that can cause syncope. And I think in the entire issue, one of my favorite figures is actually figure one. It's sort of a pinwheel that starts with the center being low cardiac output or low peripheral resistance, and then works outwards towards a definitive diagnosis of cardiac syncope, reflex syncope, orthostatic hypotension, or drug-induced syncope. When we're looking at all of the varied things that can cause syncope, what's a useful way that you approach differentiating all the different types?
1: So I think that's really the, the the challenge of what we face as emergency clinicians, because there are so many different uh, factors that can lead to that final common pathway of low cerebral uh, of low blood pressure low blood pressure with cerebral hyperfusion, as you mentioned. Um, the this figure i think does a really good job of of sort of conceptually dividing out what might lead you to those pathways Uh, we obviously become most concerned about the cardiac syncope because this is usually the most immediately life-threatening but in 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 general there's a lot of different things anything that essentially decreases your preload uh, decreases your uh, cardiac contractility can ultimately lead to syncope with uh, uh, with cerebral hyperperfusion
0: and I like in the article that you specifically said, if you're searching for a cause for syncope and you find it, then you're sort of leaving this algorithm. As the article progresses, we're increasingly focused on the syncope without a cause. So as we're searching through all of the different items that can cause syncope, once we actually make a diagnosis, say you have a massive PE or you had an arrhythmia, or we have evidence for uh, severe dehydration or something of that sort, then we can exit the algorithm and go treat that problem and not really worry about the syncope anymore as much as just treating the underlying diagnosis.
1: Absolutely. Syncope is is really more of a symptom than it is a specific diagnosis, and it can be the symptom of a life-threatening disease. Uh, one of the uh, uh, adages that I ran across in my research uh, said that syncope is uh, the only difference between syncope and death is that you wake up from syncope. And so obviously there's a great deal of overlap there. Um, Our risk stratification of syncope should really only occur if we have failed to identify an an immediately life-threatening cause, such as GI bleed, pulmonary embolism, acute MI, subarachnoid hemorrhage, etc. Those are all things that can manifest with transient loss of consciousness, but are very, very different entities than uh, syncope without an apparent etiology. So let's
0: start at the top. One of the things that's frequently puzzling is trying to differentiate syncope from a seizure as the patient is presenting in the emergency department. And we are in a place where we have to inquire about specific details on what people saw. People frequently think they're seeing seizure activity, but that may not always be the cause. How how do we go about differentiating those two
1: the real key is, is the history. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we're often not there, and the patient was unconscious, so they're not able to provide a great deal of the history. So, getting anything we can from bystanders to EMS, et cetera, will be very beneficial in trying to distinguish those. It's the case that patients often, or, or bystanders, people, lay people, uh, and healthcare providers as well, often focus more on the movement uh rather than the loss of consciousness and so things will be labeled as seizure uh, even though that's not actually what what happens seizure i think is probably better conceptualized as an electrical storm in the brain that may result in motor activity in syncope the brain is being hypoperfused, and so while there can be some convulsive activity associated with it it's typically briefer uh, and if you are able to get a reliable number of uh, jerks uh, associated with the episode less than 10 would probably uh, indicate syncope whereas uh, more than 20 is going to be more suggestive of seizure Uh, the other big thing that's really really helpful is determining if and how long any post-ictal period was present. As mentioned, you know, an electrical storm in the brain is going to leave the neurons uh, sort of stunned uh, for a period of time you know, on the order of 15 to 60 minutes. Whereas with hyperperfusion, once you turn on uh, the blood back to the brain, the brain is going to start functioning fairly normally again within a very brief period of time usually seconds to a minute or so and so if you're able to uh, get that information it can help you distinguish between syncope and seizure it's interesting some of the things that people uh, typically rely on such as urinary incontinence actually don't wind up having much use uh, in reliably distinguishing between those two entities
0: yeah that is very interesting And I also find myself frequently asking family members what they did when they saw that their loved one syncopized. And oftentimes they're holding them up or holding them in a chair in an upright position instead of laying them flat and then observing the 30 seconds or sometimes even a complete full minute before the person's blood flow to the brain finally restores itself and watching these twitches. Uh, and it can it can be a little nuanced teasing that out from people if it's not in your script to ask, oh, you watched your wife have a syncopal episode. What did you do? Did you allow her to fall to the ground? Oh, no, I caught her. So, okay. And then did you hold her up in a chair or did you lay her down slowly and raise the feet? And, no, no, no. I held her in the chair. I didn't want her to fall. say oh, okay, so she was upright this whole time while she was doing these little twitches you were watching. That can be a, a specific nuance you have to pull out of somebody because they're they're generally not going to just be um, giving you that information up front without a little prompting.
1: Absolutely. And and the longer uh, the patient is uh, kept from becoming recumbent, the more likely it is that the hyperfusion is going to persist and result in some sort of motor activity. One of the other factors that may be helpful is that seizures don't typically develop in older adults out of the blue. And so if a young person uh, has, motor, has abnormal motor activity, it may be more likely to be um, uh, seizure. But as they get older, it's probably more likely to be syncope.
0: And we're using, it looks like in the article, an age cutoff of about 45 years old. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Now, once the syncopal episode has occurred, family has called EMS and they arrive on scene, there is a lot of useful information that pre-hospital personnel can gather from the scene and from family before they transport the patient to the emergency department. What kinds of information are we looking for them to
1: obtain? The biggest things that we're looking for are the things that the patient themselves can't provide, uh, and many, many syncopal episodes unfortunately uh, don't occur with family members nearby. So the people who observed it won't be there in the ER for us to ask about things like: was there abnormal posturing? Was there abnormal um, head turning? How long did the episode last? Did they go to ground immediately? Uh, did they have any sort of uh, pallor or? Uh, other uh, unusual appearance before the episode occurred. And so those are all questions that can, uh, that the pre-hospital providers can obtain, which, which can be really, really instrumental in making the diagnosis. Uh, I, there was one, <laughs> one, one study uh, I, I read that estimated that when the diagnosis of undifferentiated syncope is made uh, in the ER about 90% of the time is from the history and physical. Uh, and so the the single most valuable uh, test we have uh, is sitting down and talking to the patient.
0: And then things that pre-hospital personnel can perform before arrival would be checking a blood glucose to make sure they're not hypoglycemic. Uh, I noticed ECG or pre-hospital ECG is in there and a brief and focused neurological exam is in there as well.
1: Yes, uh, th- there there is some evidence that in cardiac uh, causes of syncope, some of the arrhythmias may be transient. Uh, and uh, the closer to the event that, then, that an ECG is recorded, the more likely we are to find an abnormality that we might be able to act upon. It's also helpful to be able to take that pre hospital EKG and compare it to an EKG obtained in the ER. Uh, of course, you know, it's a, it is an episode of altered mental status, so uh, glucose is appropriate. Doing the, the standard assessment uh, to make sure that they're not hypoxic, they're not tachycardic, they're not hypotensive, et cetera, uh, is also important in the pre hospital environment. We do expect people. Um, to be transiently hypotensive when they have a syncopal episode. So a uh, slightly low uh, blood pressure in the pre-hospital environment is not necessarily alarming, but we certainly want to make sure that it's not persisting.
0: And then they need to elicit if there's been any history of trauma, not necessarily like falling off a ladder or roof, although that's important, but more also regarding the syncopal episode itself. Did they fall in the bathroom? Did they hit their head? Was there any kind of CNS trauma? as a result of the syncope or preceding it. Is that right?
1: Absolutely, uh, and, and that becomes even more important as, uh, as patients get older, um, because they are more likely to sustain injuries. Uh, there's, there's some evidence that uh, unexplained uh, falls or loss of consciousness that results in fractures uh, is, is more likely to be syncopal. Uh, and so they certainly want to make sure that they're doing an appropriate assessment of the patient and seeing if, if uh, C-spine uh, immobilization is indicated uh, at that time or if there's an injury as a result of the syncope that might be better cared for in a trauma center.
0: Okay. So working down the undifferentiated syncope, they have an uneventful transport to the emergency department, pre-hospital personnel don't pick up any specific findings. The blood glucose is normal, the ECG was normal. They currently have no neuro deficits and there was no involved trauma. And they make it to our emergency department and now it's time for us to engage with the patient. Uh, When we start with the history, what kinds of things are we going to be asking the patient that would be helpful in the differentiation process?
1: Our first priority, I think, is, is to assess, uh, are there findings, uh, either in the history or physical, that would suggest that there is a life-threatening etiology of syncope present? So do you have uh, chest pain? Uh, do you have you know, neurodeficit, shortness of breath? Are you hypotensive abdominal pain? Are you bleeding uh, somewhere, have a history of uh, melanoma or other indications of a GI bleed? That's our first priority uh, in evaluating the patient when they uh, present to the emergency department. And
0: so that's looking at things like MI, GI, life-threatening GI bleeding, uh, aortic dissection, ruptured AAAs, uh, other abdominal catastrophes. So the major life-threatening events that we screen for normally in the emergency departments as a cause for the syncopal episode.
1: Absolutely, and and just as uh, uh, people oftentimes will focus on the the abnormal motor activity that might accompany uh, syncope, sometimes people will be. So focused on the loss of consciousness that they sort of minimize or neglect to mention the oh yeah well I had some abdominal pain with this or or gosh yeah I have been bleeding pretty heavily uh, you know in my period or uh, you know I had some had some chest pain with it before this happened but they may not uh, draw that to our attention unless we specifically ask for it
0: and what about the elderly people in falls? so I'm seeing someone with your typical hip fracture from a fall what kinds of tailored questions am i going to have to ask this person for a to differentiate was this a syncopal episode or not
1: so i think the biggest factor is do they have a clear recollection uh, of this being a mechanical fall uh, they were up walking, they tripped on the rug, they tripped over a step, um, and they recall everything on the way down. Uh, patients that found themselves on the floor, uh, I think we we have to assume that there's a good chance that this might have actually been a sinkable presentation. And uh, there's there's one study that indicated that uh, perhaps even as many as 50% of unexplained falls in this group may be sinkable in origin.
0: Wow. So trying to find out if the person recalls the fall is critical, discussing other associated symptoms that might lead us down another pathway, like the chest pain, the abdominal pain, the neuro symptoms, uh, and then asking if they had any prodromal symptoms. All of that is encompassed in what we're going to ask for the initial evaluation.
1: If we feel that we've uh, determined that there's not, uh, at least based on the history and physical and immediately life-threatening cause that we need to investigate further, then we can turn uh, to for, toward uh, examining the syncopal episode a little bit more specifically. And some of the things to ascertain in, in evaluating that is, is this something that's happened to them before? Maybe they have a long-standing history of syncope, and this is a very similar episode uh, to what they've had previously. Uh, do they recall any warning that there was going to be a loss of consciousness. Some patients will describe getting clammy, uh, lightheaded tunnel vision, uh, or roaring or ringing in their ears. Uh, maybe they had palpitations. Uh, figuring out if there were any sort of prodromal symptoms uh, can be very helpful in determining whether or not this was syncope and maybe helping you uh, figure out what type of syncope they might have had.
0: Okay. so one we're done with our history and we've obtained answers to all of those questions we're moving on to examination there is a pretty heavy focus on vital signs and appropriately so we call them vital for a reason but vital signs make a big difference is that right
1: absolutely patients with abnormal vital signs that persist upon presentation to the emergency department should not be presumed to have a low-risk etiology of syncope. Uh, And that's something that we sometimes uh, maybe don't pay as much attention to, the tachycardia. Uh, We think, oh, well, they had syncope, so of course they're going to be hypotensive. But in fact, uh, if they have persistent hypotension, that's a big red flag that there's something much more serious going on that we should not ignore.
0: Yeah, and additionally, uh, hypoxia, uh, even mild tachycardia, you know, pulse rates of about a hundred, all of those things can impact our differential uh, in and make a big difference in trying to determine whether this was just benign syncope. Uh, I did notice you mentioned orthostatic vital signs. Now, tell me about that. There's been some some debate uh, about whether or not we should be doing these in the emergency department anymore. Do they still play a role in syncope? <sighs>
1: So I think they do. I think the the biggest risk with orthostatic vital signs is that we attempt to shoehorn um, a potentially serious cause of syncope into the relatively benign category of orthostatic hypotension. Um, I think the major reason that we should be checking them is that uh, one. that's a common cause, particularly among older people. Uh, we should be, uh, you know, looking at medications because medication-related uh, orthostatic hypotension is a fairly frequent cause of syncope presentations in the elderly, uh, and it it is one of the more modifiable. Uh, risks or causes of syncope that we might see. If a patient's on a diuretic and they're having recurrent episodes of syncope, and we've never actually checked orthostatic vitals, uh, we might uh, prolong uh, their exposure to the risk of of a significant fall as a result of a syncope event.
0: So there is benefit in performing them. We just have to be careful about attributing the diagnosis to orthostasis without having done a full evaluation.
1: Right, and that and that's when uh, research has shown that patients with orthostatic hypotension may not necessarily have worse outcomes, uh, and I think that that's uh, why we have to be very deliberate in how we interpret uh, the finding of orthostatic hypotension uh, in a emergency department patient with syncope.
0: Now, you also mentioned carotid sinus massage, and honestly, this isn't something I typically do in my practice, so tell me more about why we should be adding this to our physical exam uh, for the workup of syncope.
1: Sure. I think this is one of the, the more surprising uh, finding was the strength of the recommendations by both the American Heart Association and the European Society for Cardiology. Uh, essentially, if you have a patient that's over 40 years old, that you've not been able to determine the etiology of syncope, and you've ruled out threats to life, uh, if there are uh, no contraindications to perform a carotid sinus massage, such as patients that are at high risk for stroke, uh, that have had an MI in the previous three months, or a history of ventricular rhythm. Uh, or complications uh, from previous massage, then uh, they they actually recommend that we consider performing carotid sinus sinus massage to uh, establish the diagnosis of uh, neurally-mediated syncope.
0: And this is something that can be performed safely in the emergency department, or is this something we should be deferring to the outpatient setting during their follow-up visit?
1: So I think it's actually probably uh, best accomplished in the emergency department uh, because you want to make sure that you have appropriate uh, monitoring and resuscitation equipment present, which may not be present in the clinical, uh, in, the cl- in the office environment, uh, for instance. Uh, typically, uh, you perform it just as you would for uh, cardioversion of a patient with SVT. Uh, It's the same technique, Uh, and it's considered positive if they have syncope asystole over three seconds, if they develop an AV block, or if their uh, systolic pressure drops at least fifty millimeters of mercury. So any of those findings would be considered positive and would establish a diagnosis of uh, neurally mediated syncope.
0: And those findings would be seen immediately after, if not during the carotid sinus massage to make the diagnosis of carotid sinus hypersensitivity is that right
1: exactly Uh, they would be seen uh, basically uh, while you're doing uh, the carotid sinus massage and you mentioned carotid sinus hypersensitivity that's that's when you know there's some historical features such as syncope with shaving or turning your head uh, that we always kind of classically think about Um, but this uh, many patients unfortunately don't read the textbooks and so this this may be an opportunity for us to, to identify an etiology of syncope in the patients that we otherwise would miss and that could potentially be referred for other uh, high-risk or uh, potentially invasive testing.
0: All right. So something I need to add to my physical examination for syncope, including Table 5, the list of contraindications to performing these, which uh, isn't necessarily as easy to remember as one might think. So High risk for stroke, including a uh, recent TIA or stroke within the last three months, or known clinical carotid stenosis, or the presence of a bruit, or history of peripheral artery disease, or coronary artery disease. Certainly, I think a lot of our elderly patients will fit into these categories. And then complications from prior attempts at carotid massage, uh, previous history of MI within the past three months, because potentially an increased risk of cardiac arrhythmias during the procedure, uh, and a personal history of ventricular arrhythmias. That's quite an extensive list.
1: It is. And as you mentioned, there's there's sort of a window, um, <laughs> you know, over age 40 until patients accumulate some of those conditions that will be contraindications. Uh, so it's not something I'm going to be trying in my 90-year-old patients, um, but but for the young otherwise healthy people in their 40s, maybe early 50s, uh, it might be uh, beneficial.
0: That's very helpful. And then we move on to our ECG. So we're going to perform an electrocardiogram on these patients, even if they've had one pre-hospital, so that we can at least do the comparison to see if there's been any change. But what kind of things are we looking for in the ED on ECG?
1: So that's uh, actually a fairly controversial question, um, because uh, in a perfect world, we'll get a completely normal EKG, normal sinus rhythm, no conduction abnormalities, no arrhythmias, uh, no evidence of ischemia or any other unusual Findings such as Brigada or Epsilon waves, et cetera. Um, That's the perfect world. Um, If we don't get the normal EKG, then it becomes a lot more challenging because there is some controversy as to which findings are actually more likely to be associated with adverse outcomes. Uh, And that's where, uh, for instance, uh, curiously, uh, the Type 1 Brigada, Um, may actually not be as clearly associated with adverse outcomes, uh, even though we always think about looking for it. Um, uh, There's some controversy as to whether or not that's actually uh, a dangerous finding. But in general, uh, any kind of non-sinus rhythm, if they have multiple PVCs, uh, short PR intervals, any kind of AV block, even including first-degree AV block uh, in patients with syncope, uh, left bundle branch block, or any kind of uh, ischemic findings are worrisome and may pretend a, a bad outcome.
0: And when we talk about these findings, these should be new findings, correct? So for example, if I have an old EKG on this patient and they have the same changes a year ago and there's been no new change, is that does that exclude them from the high risk category?
1: So I would say actually it does not exclude them. Um, because the 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 goal is that we're trying to identify patients with um, poor conducting systems. Um, and that could be from a variety of causes, but if if their uh, cardiovascular uh, physiology is such that they've already developed left bundle branch block or they have non-sinus rhythm, uh, including atrial fibrillation, uh, even if it's not a new finding of atrial fibrillation, it's likely associated with uh, worse outcomes.
0: Okay, so not necessarily a new finding, just the presence of these things on ECG may put them in a higher-risk category.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: All right. And then labs. So some of us may be working at a place where we already have a pre-built order set for, you know, syncope over the age of 40. But if not, and you're having to pick and choose, there are some things that are helpful and some things that might be helpful. So where do we start in this scenario?
1: So I think starting uh, with with sort of the more basic studies such as your CBC, your electrolytes, renal function, and uh, pregnancy tests, particularly in uh, females of childbearing age, I think that's uh, reasonable. Um, now you can make the argument that for a young person with clear vasovagal syncope, those are not necessary. Um, but I think if you're if you're reaching the point where you have an undifferentiated syncope, uh, those are very uh, reasonably. Uh, Inexpensive uh, studies that can that can sometimes help identify patients that might otherwise be missed. The uh, other studies that might be useful uh, include uh, lactate. If you're if you're still trying to sort out whether or not this might have been seizure versus syncope, there's some evidence that a uh, that an elevated lactate within uh, two hours may um, may support a diagnosis of seizure. And then uh, the sort of more emerging um, or potentially controversial, is the role of uh, BNP or uh, pro-BNP and troponin in the, in the risk stratification of syncope. And that's something that uh, it was interesting uh, reviewing the studies from uh, a fairly long time period to find that before the advent of high-sensitivity troponin uh, and the uh, BNP and pro-BNP, there really wasn't a lot of utility in uh, cardiac biomarkers. Uh, but as the high-sensitivity study, uh, high sensitivity assays became available, uh, there actually did appear to be some prognostic value associated um, with uh, with those particular uh, tests.
0: Now, you mentioned the high-sensitivity troponin. So if someone's working in an emergency department where they just have the standard troponin I and not the high-sensitivity version, does that mean that the standard test is of less utility or no utility?
1: So I would say a positive result is still interesting and should change your management. Um, A negative test may not be as reassuring as it would be if you had a high sensitivity study.
0: And then you mentioned in the article potentially doing a delta BNP or measuring it at presentation and then again after a certain number of hours. Is there utility to that?
1: I think that, um, yeah, that was an interesting study. It, it looked at uh, BNP, uh, both at presentation and at six hours, and found uh, that an increase was more likely to be associated with syncope from ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. Uh, and so I think if, for whatever reason, you have a syncope patient that uh, you've not been able to clearly say this is a benign etiology, then I think we, they can go and they're in your ER uh, or in a uh, observation or other monitored setting. At six hours, there may be some utility in repeating that uh, and a positive result uh, would be uh, certainly worth considering further. Uh, I, I think I think it's hard to say at this point that it's uh, diagnostic of it, um, but I think it is certainly a little bit more smoke to add to the fire of a ventricular arrhythmia.
0: and it doesn't really establish a threshold for change in BNP that would be specific to ventricular arrhythmia. So we couldn't say, if the bnp went up by 100 that that was diagnostic but if it went up by 50 that it's not
1: right it's not it's not that well fleshed out at this point i think it's uh, something that further research is going to have to look at
0: and then just for clarification purposes we check pregnancy tests on women of reproductive age because we're looking for ectopic pregnancy as a potential cause for underlying syncope is that right?
1: Yes, absolutely, and and uh, again, going back to the fact that patients patients will sometimes fixate on the loss of consciousness and uh, neglect the oh yeah I had some abdominal pain beforehand. Uh, also, one and this is this is a potential confounder, but uh, sometimes patients with vagal syncope, which is of course more common in younger people, uh, will also have some abdominal pain associated with it. Uh, and so that that can make it a little bit more challenging, but certainly it's something that we want to avoid ascribing uh, the abdominal pain to a benign etiology until we've ruled out uh, that threat to life.
0: Okay, so I've got my list of labs there. BNP may be helpful depending on the situation. Same with the troponin, uh, lactic acid, if I'm still debating whether or not this was a seizure. But the basics are there. So the CBC, the chemistry profile, the renal function, and the pregnancy test. And then we're looking at bedside echocardiography. So we are talking about formal echocardiography, or the rapid ED version performed by me personally, or what kind of ed- echocardiography are we discussing?
1: So, in the studies, they were looking at formal echocardiography, uh, and so I think that uh, potentially, uh, you know, for instance, if a patient is hypotensive and you're doing a rush exam and looking to evaluate, uh, you know, the squeeze and things along those lines, uh, I think that is certainly reasonable. It's just not something that's been formally uh, studied uh in this in this particular setting uh there are some things that predict a uh, a likelihood of finding abnormal echo echocardiogram such as a history of heart failure coronary artery disease abnormal ekg or elevated biomarkers Uh, in the absence of those it's probably not going to be tremendously helpful to obtain echocardiograms uh, on your undifferentiated patient. Now, if you have a uh, you know young patient with exertional syncope with dagger Q waves on their EKG that you're concerned about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then certainly uh, you, you know they may fall outside of that uh, narrow list of uh, predictors. But um, in general, if if you have a patient with a relatively normal evaluation, an echocardiogram is unlikely to meaningfully change uh, their uh, disposition or or prognosis.
0: Great. And then there's CT imaging. So when we talk about imaging, we have just plain film x ray and CT. So let's begin with CT. Uh, many family members will often, after having seen a family member have a syncopal episode, uh, come in being concerned that there was something intracranial going on. You know, we need a CT of their head. Uh, but what is the evidence behind this particular test and whether or not it's helpful in syncope?
1: So, the evidence is actually very, very robust. Uh, We should not be obtaining CTs in patients with syncope unless there is another independent indication uh, for the CT other than syncope. So, for instance, a patient comes in, uh, they had a syncopal episode, they awoke with worst headache of their life, Um, they had a syncopal episode, they awoke with uh, a neurologic deficit, um, had a syncopal episode, they're on anticoagulants, and they struck their head, absolutely obtain CTs in those situations. Um, But... In the absence of those uh, indications, uh, I think it's important that we uh, educate patients and families uh, that this was not a brain problem. This is more likely a a heart, uh, a pump, a vessel problem. Uh, And the CT scan is only going to expose them to radiation without actually uh, giving us additional information about what caused their problem.
0: Okay, so that's the brain. What about pulmonary angiography. So we're looking at CTPE studies for everyone who syncopies. You know, I noticed the D-dimer didn't make it into the list of labs. So does that mean we're just going to Automatically get the PE study, or or what's the what's the best evidence behind that decision?
1: So so the best evidence for that is if you think uh, you need to work up a PE, you should work up a PE. Um, yes, there is evidence that of course PEs can cause syncope, uh, and that patients with syncope and and pulmonary embolism have worse prognoses, but. That doesn't mean that we need to indiscriminately evaluate every patient that comes in for syncope. Other risk stratification systems, such as uh, PERC, uh, actually do a very good job uh, of, of ruling out PE in this population.
0: So I have a syncopal patient who is PERC negative. That person doesn't need a D-dimer or any CT imaging. But if they're PERC positive, then I could still go down the the Wells pathway and get a D-dimer uh, and do my standard evaluation for PE, I don't have to alter it because of the syncope.
1: That's correct, um, and uh, and and I think that's something that we uh, we sort of latch on to uh, PE as being a, a very serious cause of syncope, but it's not a terribly common cause of syncope. And so uh, patients that have a pulmonary embolus large enough to obstruct blood flow and result in cerebral hyperperfusion Almost never will be perk negative uh, in the ER, uh, and so so that's something I think that if you have a uh, person that's uh, fifty or older uh, that had syncopal episode, I think considering pulmonary embolism and uh, you using Wells might be appropriate. Um, but uh, for the vast majority, especially younger patients with syncope, um, the syncopal event in an, in and of itself is not a reason to obtain a D dimer in this population.
0: Yeah, this can be a little challenging, I think, especially for people who have a pre-built order set that includes many of these labs as an automatic order. Uh, I've seen cases where we get uh, elevated BNPs or elevated D-dimers or uh, an elevated lactic acid that's borderline. And we end up kind of scratching our heads going, well, I'm not entirely sure what to do with this information because it came before any kind of pathway or calculation of risk or consideration for risk before the, the result arrived. And so... I think it's good to highlight that it's still important to run through that mental algorithm and decide on a risk level before you automatically order tests, because test results will come back abnormal, and then the interpretation of them is going to rely on you having already performed that mental activity. And if you haven't done it already, it can be really muddying for the picture.
1: Absolutely, I think without knowing what the pretest probability of the condition we're looking for is, it's it's challenging, if not impossible, to accurately interpret a test result. Uh, And uh, when uh, autopilot has been, uh, uh, has already been initiated, and and we are presented with a series of test results, sometimes it it definitely uh, clouds uh, the picture.
0: Okay, so let's move on to stratifying risk. So apparently there are quite a number of risk ratification tools even more than i understood were out there uh, that you have wonderfully reviewed and summarized in table eight Uh, now what role are all of these tools going to play for us in the emergency department is there are there one or two of these that are have actually been proven to be useful or or diagnostic in the ed
1: so that's that's a very challenging uh, question to answer fairly, I think, um, because uh, as with many studies, many uh, clinical decision rules, when the uh, originators test them, they perform very, very well. Uh, and then uh, researchers from a different institution, a different region, uh, uh, start to look at them. They don't tend to perform as well. And with syncope, that's that's very much the case. You know, there's uh, the old uh, uh in medicine, that if there's you know ten treatments for a condition, then none of them are very good. Uh, similarly, uh, if there are fourteen different clinical decision rules, then none of them are great. Uh, there is uh, there's been a few that came out in the past uh, year or so that I'm optimistic that if uh, externally validated, may actually uh, be meaningful and, and achieve their goal of reducing admissions uh, for for patients. And those are the the Canadian syncope can be risk stratification uh, system in the in the faint rule. Uh, the, both of those are fairly recent, though,
0: yeah, I like in the table how you summarize the criteria and the outcome of the rule. I think it's important to highlight that when we're in the emergency department trying to decide if someone can safely go home, we're looking at a very short follow-up outcome or time frame. Uh, in which the patient might have an adverse event. So it's important to me to know that in the three, four, five days, maybe even a week or two until this person can see their primary care physician and get that follow up testing or evaluation done, that nothing serious is going to happen to them. And so some of these risk calculators measured outcomes as far out as a year which isn't necessarily as helpful for me. Uh, it's good to know that they're low risk for a year, but I am really hyper-focused on the next seven days uh, and what's going to happen with this person then during that time frame. So I see that some of these scoring systems, all they all vary based on their criteria, what the score cutoff was, and what the ultimate outcome was that they measured, making comparison really quite difficult.
1: Yes, and uh, another uh, factor that I thought was interesting is that some of the rules uh, actually incorporate the clinician's uh, estimation as uh, as far as what the etiology of syncope might be. Uh, for instance, patients that are presumed to have a, a vasovagal episode will be low risk, mm. uh, or or have points taken away that move them further away from being a high risk patient. Uh, whereas patients that are estimated in the clinic in the ED to have a, a, a high risk presentation actually Or push further towards the high risk end of the scale. I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon. How the role sort of piggybacks uh, on clinician gestalt.
0: Yeah, that is that that can be problematic if you're listening and you're and you're not sure what we're talking about. Sometimes that allows for some bias from the person who is performing the calculation. So if I'm the physician and I think, oh, you just had vasovagal syncope, this is really nothing, and that's a bias I already bring to the table, then when I open up the calculating system and it asks me, do you think this is vasovagal and pretty benign? And I put yes. If it weighs that highly, then it's not actually performing any kind of objective assessment. It's really more just validating the bias I already brought to this conversation. And though my opinion certainly has weight, the helpful scoring systems rely less on that and more on some objective data and then it's helpful if they confirm what i already assume or the bias that i'm bringing uh, and less helpful if they're just relying a lot on what i'm bringing to the conversation before we even start the calculation so that's why that particular element can be a little challenging in scoring systems but i do think you did a really good job summarizing all of that data i especially like Table 7, this is the the low-risk and high-risk features of syncope, which looks like it came from the European Society of Cardiology uh, based on just the event, so characteristics that make it low or high-risk, their past medical history characteristics that make it low or high-risk, and then their physical examination and ECG. It's a very nice table that outlines those abnormal and hopefully reassuring findings. Uh, I found that to be very helpful.
1: Yes, I, th- I thought that was an excellent presentation uh, because one of the things you uh, you start to see is that there are, clusters of findings that support a low risk or a high risk presentation. And so patients that are young, that are healthy, that have normal vital signs that have a presentation suggestive of a vasovagal event that have a normal EKG, et cetera, all of these kind of cluster around low risk, even if there's no one specific clinical decision rule that incorporates all of those elements. And similarly older patients with significant comorbidities or those that have abnormal vital signs, those that have chest pain, uh, shortness of breath, um, elevated cardiac biomarkers or uh, abnormal EKGs, those tend to cluster as high risk. And so the uh, table from the European Society of Cardiology actually did a really good job of putting that in, in a format that you can kind of see uh, almost immediately how those, how those shake out.
0: Okay. And before we move on to the disposition, so what we're going to do with this patient ultimately, there are a couple of controversies you highlighted. One we spoke about already, that's orthostatic vital signs, but another was the admission of elderly patients. So tell me what the controversy is there.
1: So I think that one of the things uh, that we as emergency clinicians have in our mind is that uh, if we put a patient in the hospital, we're doing something good for them, Uh, that we are changing their outcome, their prognosis in some way. And for syncope, that doesn't necessarily appear to be the case. So for patients in whom, elderly patients in whom a life-threatening uh, etiology has not been identified, but who are high risk based on age or other, other risk factors, um, it appears that their, their long-term uh, outcome is really related to their comorbidities, not to the hospitalization itself. Uh, and so that's, uh, to me, I, I found that to be fairly interesting, uh, that uh, our, our reflexive oh, you know, the patient is high risk for a bad outcome, we should put them in the hospital. Well, maybe that hospitalization actually doesn't do anything meaningful that's going to change uh, their risk for a bad outcome. One of the other uh, things uh, that, that I think is reasonable to consider is that many of the risk stratification systems incorporate uh Historical findings such as CHF, uh, but there is some evidence that patients, even the elderly patients or patients with risk factors by past medical history, um, can be safely discharged if their present syncopal episode was related to a benign cause. And that's uh, you know again with the elderly, one of the most frequent ones is medication-related ortho- orthostatic hypotension. Of course, they can also get dehydrated, uh, etc. So there's lots of lots of potentially uh, relatively benign. Uh, causes that could be potentially safely discharged from the ER, even if uh, they have history of coronary artery disease or CHF, uh, that the risk stratification uh, systems would indicate should prompt hospitalization.
0: Yeah, you know, we talk a, a lot about shared decision making. I kind of feel like it's the the hammer that's constantly beat into my head. Uh, here in the last several years, but but this is one of those areas where I have been surprised with what patients have told me, even in scenarios where they've had a dramatic syncope episode, if their entire ED evaluation is normal and there are no red flags, and we're going through their risk stratification, there are quite a number of people who do not want to be in the hospital, and unless we have objective Proof that the hospitalization is going to actually yield something important for the patient. Their automatic set point is: I'm going home unless you can prove to me that being in the hospital is going to make a difference for me. Uh, and so, this kind of information is helpful, especially when having you know the conversation with the 70 year old, where we say, "Well, look, you you have multiple medical problems, but actually, the data shows even with that, if your ED evaluation is completely normal." The hospitalization may not reveal the cause and here's the scenario wherein you you have some high risk elements or some high risk features based on your past medical history but nothing else is coming back abnormal and now we're left with the decision of do we need to put you in the hospital or can we send you home and have you follow up with your primary care doctor and I, i've always been surprised with the number of people who just want to go home and want to avoid the hospital at all costs
1: yeah I think that's uh, that's that's definitely true. Uh, you know sometimes if the if the ultimate i guess uh, end game of the treatment they might receive is not something they're indicated, uh, they're not not something they're interested in rather, uh, then there's really no reason to put them in the hospital. Uh, you know my my uh, uh, I guess my kind of personal rule is that you know ninety year olds can do whatever they want. Uh, you know if a nine year old comes in for a problem that it's reasonable to hospitalize them for, I'm happy to put them in the hospital. And if they have something that I think they need to be hospitalized for, but they want to go home, absolutely. Uh, I, will, I will defer to their wishes. Uh, it gets a lot trickier when you have the fifty eight year old or the sixty seven year old. Um, but certainly as you as you reach uh, the extreme of age, uh, I think engaging that shared decision making and and just giving them the data they need to make the best decision for them personally uh, is is the right choice.
0: So when we talk about disposition, now that we've had this conversation with the patient, we've done our evaluation, you have broken down the disposition pathway kind of into three groups, the high risk, the intermediate risk, and the low risk, based on some of criteria and their past medical history. And the the ultimate disposition there varies quite a bit. So walk me through that a little bit.
1: Sure so i think the you know the high risk patients the the ultimate high risk patients are those that are that experience syncope as a result of a uh, ongoing life threatening condition so the patient with massive pulmonary embolism or the patient with the mi the patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage those are very very easy uh, straightforward decisions uh the patients that have a uh undiagnosed syncope uh but whose uh whose evaluation in the e, in the ED leads you to cl- categorize them as high risk those are ones that i think may benefit from a structured observation unit uh, observation pathway either in the in an ED observation unit or in the hospital uh, and those um those again, I think, are very uh, very straightforward. We make that recommendation. That's uh, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, the low risk patients. Those are very simple as well. If you have a young person that came in that donated plasma and then had a uh, syncable episode, you know, give them some fluids and they can go home and everything's fine. Uh, uh, it's it's the ones that uh, have pretty benign evaluations, but but some of the risk factors that put them in that sort of that gray zone that are a lot uh, a lot more challenging.
0: And then we're back into this kind of shared decision-making zone where we say, you know, you may or may not benefit from being in the hospital with observation, and here's this pathway we've established, but the cause still remains unclear, essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and and I think we have to be honest uh, uh, with the limits of our knowledge uh, with, with patients that fall into that category, um, because uh, even even now, with all of our testing and all of our research, uh, many many patients will fall into this category of undiagnosed syncope, uh, and we just have to explain to them uh, what is available. Uh, you know what testing might be reasonable and what testing might be likely. Uh, to produce a diagnosis that would result in a, in a change in therapy. Uh, and for many patients, that's that's a fairly limited list uh, as far as what we're actually going to do. Uh, and if patients have good follow-up, um, with their primary care doctor uh, or or with other so some facilities actually have syncope clinics uh, or fall clinics uh, that uh, that you might be able to refer your your patient to. Then in many cases, that's actually going to be a fairly reasonable option for disposition from the ed.
0: Fantastic. Well, we have reached the end. Is there anything else in the article that you think you feel
1: you want to talk about? Uh, one study of pediatric patients, be 58% received uh, head CTs. And in that particular study, none of them had an abnormality. And so, so we've got to be uh, much more judicious um, in, in imaging, particularly in our younger patients.
0: Absolutely. That's a great point. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks again to Dr. Morris for a wonderful article and a summary for us on the podcast of Syncope. Before we sign off, I want to remind you that this month, Clinical Decision Making in Emergency Medicine is taking place June 23rd through the 27th in Pontevedra, And I sincerely hope you can make it. But if you can't, there is a virtual option at clinicaldecisionmaking.com. And also look forward to seeing the mobile app from EB Medicine this summer. That's it for me. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Eshoo.